1: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Hi, Chris. Hi, Farah. So, are you ready for this week's quick fire round? I
2: can't wait. What have you got for me this week?
0: This week, it's about the world of media and entertainment. Netflix or Amazon Prime?
2: I think Netflix. There's just more there.
0: Sky or BBC?
2: I am a big fan of the BBC. They have their critics and I am one of those from time to time, but I think the BBC is fundamentally a force for good in the world.
0: Well, let's go to some huge BBC icons. John Humphreys or Jeremy Paxman?
2: I think... In his prime, Paxman. He was compelling television when he was really on the hunt. Oprah Winfrey or Ellen DeGeneres? Well, I'm a heavy consumer of both, as you could probably imagine, but probably Oprah, mainly because the name of her company is her name spelt backwards.
0: The name of her company?
2: Yeah, her production company is Harpo. No
0: way! I didn't know that That is great Yeah
2: Well there you go That's a really big (laughs) and profound reason For going with Oprah
0: That is a great reason I'm loving that
2: Yeah You're welcome ITV or Channel 4 I think Channel 4, they probably lost their way a bit recently, but I remember when Channel 4 launched, because I'm really old, and they really were... That was in the days when there was only three channels to watch in the UK. And when Channel 4 launched, they really, really were completely different uh, and changed the face of, uh, of television in the UK.
0: Well, two great television personalities, which you may or may not be able to differentiate, Ant or
3: Deck.
2: Yeah, I, I can't actually tell them apart, Um I'm going to go with deck because it's not ant. (laughs) Before we go to the episode, it's worth noting that this was recorded in May 2020 before the global Black Lives Matter movement gained traction following the tragic killing of George Floyd. Hello and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership podcast powered by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm Global CEO of Havas Creative Group. Leadership is difficult but not complicated. In this podcast series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, technology, sports, or politics. My guest today is the broadcaster and author June Sarpon, who last year became the BBC's first ever Director of Creative Diversity. June, for more than 20 years you've been a fixture on our TV screens. From MTV to Channel 4's hugely successful T4, from Loose Women to Sky News, you've been a passionate advocate for diversity and change in the media and beyond, and you're the author of two books, Diversify and The Power of Women.
3: Ah, hi Chris, thank you for having me. Obviously, it's always good to see you, even on a screen.
2: In three words, describe your leadership style.
3: I think I am pretty direct. I am laid back. And I would say I'm also enthusiastic and encouraging.
2: So it's four. Four words. There you go. And if you could delete any word from the business jargon dictionary, what would it be?
3: Not invented here.
2: Which leader do you most admire? Could be from from any point in history. What a wonderful question.
3: I think you know who is kind of underrated, actually, is Phil Knight.
2: I'll give you change the world, Nike.
3: Even though he gets a lot of black, actually, Jeff Bezos. I mean, the patience yeah. of that man is, is unbelievable. Oh. But obviously, there are much more ethical leaders that I admire. But if we're looking at just business results, I think those two have done phenomenally well.
2: What is the worst decision you've ever made? When I moved to America...
3: I sold my
2: house. Uh <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it that
3: fine. I mean, I didn't okay out of it. My God, if I kept it, I would never wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have to work
2: again. The corollary to that then, what's the best decision? Best you've ever decision made?
3: I've ever made, I think, uh, was actually to move to America when I did. I think I definitely needed that at that point in my life. Twelve years ago, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and the best decision was coming back.
2: Uh, and final quickfire question. Uh, this is a question I always have great difficulty answering. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever best been given? Best
3: advice I've ever been given. Uh, it's not personal. I think yeah. it's because of that you know so many things right. we can take personally, and actually yeah. detached ourselves, it wouldn't impact us in the same way.
2: So that's the pain, or should I say, the fun of quickfire over. So let's uh, let's get into things in a bit more detail. Do you think the BBC are good at working from home? Overnight, we got very good at
3: working from home. 97% of the workforce, of the 27,000 workforce, are now working from home, and it's working. And I think this is the case, I'm sure it's the same for, for HAVAS. Is, you know, there are systems. We did a, a panel session last week with a bunch of DNI leaders, um, and Caroline Casey from the Value for 500 was on there too. And what she was talking about is the fact that, you know, all of the things that we've now just gotten used to, the disabled community have been campaigning on for decades. And so yeah. actually, what we've shown is when something is a priority, it can be done.
2: Your job is around driving diversity, greater diversity within the BBC. How do you think the pandemic will affect impact issues of diversity in the workplace? I mean, do you think it'll accelerate positive change, or do you think it's gonna, there's a danger it gets sort of pushed down the agenda as, as companies and organisations sort of struggle to sort of stay alive?
3: There are sort of almost two roads. The companies who actually regress not even go back to what they were doing before, but actually say, there's no money for this. We're going to stop. Mm -hmm. And then there are those that will realize that actually investing in this even more is how we're going to get ourselves out of this mess because we need the diversity of thinking. We need those diverse voices. And also, particularly if you are a B2C business, we are going into a a a recession, depression, whatever it's Mm -hmm. going to be, whatever we know we're going into financial difficulty. If we are going into that... Well, then surely you need to appeal to as many people as possible to buy your product. And also, actually, if you look at where the growth is going to be, the growth was already happening in emerging markets anyway. And weirdly, this is the one thing that emerging markets have not been as adversely impacted by as the West, which is is certainly not the case. Now, that could completely change. But if you look at the southern Asian countries, if you look at, Uh, Africa, if you look at the Caribbean, if you look at um, Latin America, their cases, they're, they're still bad, but it's nowhere near as bad as what it is in the West. And so... It really does matter how you engage with diverse communities going forward.
2: There's been some interesting articles in the press about how some countries run by female leaders have uh, been uh, have been more successful in managing the crisis. So New Zealand, Finland, Germany, Taiwan. Uh, do you think that do you think that genuinely is down to the fact that there are female leaders in those countries and do therefore we, should we draw some conclusions around how females lead?
3: I don't know about that, but what I do think works for sure is when you have a a gender equal team. So, you know, what we should be trying to do is get more women in leadership positions so that there are more women around the table when the decisions are being made. Um, And so, for me, I'm not in favor of uh, sort of replacing male dominance with female dominance. You know, no. I think what we need to get to is a place where you're just... Um, allowing people to, to, to progress to the best of their ability, regardless of gender.
2: Do you think that, that, those, that make the diverse teams reach different or better decisions?
3: Well, they do. All the data shows they do. It's mm-hmm. not even do I think. The data shows that they do. You know, If you look at the McKinsey uh, study on diversity matters in terms of outcomes, and then there's a great study uh, by a uh, professor at uh, MIT called uh, Professor Tom Malone, uh, who looks at collective intelligence and you know, the better the, the gender split, the better the ethnicity split, the better the team performs. So it's not just the moral issue, which we know it is. Um, yeah. It's an opportunity issue.
2: Absolutely. And and I mean, we find ourselves in a period of discontinuous change right now. So if ever there's an opportunity to sort of to, to break things and refix them in a different order in some shape or form, now, now surely the best time in our lifetime is probably to try and do that. So let's talk a bit about your job. What's your basic remit? What's your job description?
3: Yes, my basic remit is to uh, help the BBC become uh, much more representative in terms of its uh, uh, output, its creative output. Since I've been there, what I've said is actually let's look at the whole of our creativity. So everything Mm. comes under us. So our marketing teams, our D&E in terms of our sort of digital teams, and anybody that engages with our audience in some way through sort of content production, we should be looking to make those teams as diverse or as inclusive as possible. And we launched uh, last week uh, the first phase of our strategy, which we're calling Rivers, the Six Streams Mm. of Inclusion. Um, And that's really all around how you create a framework that all creative teams can use. And actually, the way we've done it is we've designed it so the whole creative industry uh, can um, modify and use it themselves.
2: So you're not just new to that role. It is a new role. So presumably you had to, to an extent, design the role yourself a little bit.
3: Yeah, totally, which is really exciting.
2: How do you know where to begin? I mean, it's this huge topic, this huge organisation.
3: I think really is from experience, Chris, in that, you know, I've been talent most of my life, and so I know firsthand what the BBC is very good at and perhaps what it hasn't been as good at, where diverse talent is concerned. But also I understand what creatives are up against. So I'm not in there saying, oh, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done this? understand, you know, putting together productions and so on is complicated. Mm. And so therefore, yeah. understanding the process and understanding how teams are sourced in the first place means that you can be um, that much more uh, informed in terms of how you deal with teams to get them to change. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, I think my experience as talent is really what's helped shape the kind of direction that I want to take the department in.
2: And the BBC you have made some pretty big pledges, 50% of on-air roles to go to women by the end of the year, 50% of those roles to go to BAME staff, 8% for disabled. Yeah. Is the BBC on track to, to meet those? And why do you think they're so important?
3: Well, I think we're for sure on track with on-screen representation. In fact, we've surpassed some of okay. those things. But behind the camera, certainly not. Now the work is how do we replicate the success we've mm-hmm. had on the screen behind the camera. And actually, if you get it right behind the camera, that influences yeah. just how much more authentic what happens in front of the camera. Is. You know, it's really looking at how we engage with the supply chain. And then also even just cruise, you know, even if it's not a diverse owned indie, it's, you know, whatever indie you're working with ensuring that their production team is diverse and inclusive Mm -hmm. and that you're actually encouraging them. So one of the other things we're doing is we've partnered with um, Dr. Stacey Smith, from the Annenberg Institution, which is the Inclusive and Inclusion Initiative. So she's the woman who created the Hollywood Inclusion Rider, the one that Frances McDormand mentioned at the Oscars, et cetera. And so what we're looking to do with her is we're calling it the Belonging Blueprint, which is a template for all our suppliers in terms of how they actually prepare and get their crews ready to be inclusive for when we bring in our own
2: inclusion, right? Why do you think uh, sort of in front of you, you've done a move, made faster progress, let's put it that way, in front of camera rather than behind?
3: Well, I think it's easier. You know where the talent is. It's it's talent tends to be represented by agents. And therefore, if you know know, whoever's, you know, one big BBC presenter that you often use, you know that agent... And you say, we're trying to be more inclusive. There's lots of talent they can suggest, so we've got X. Whereas we know that within our industry, it's very much about who you know. You and I have discussed this many times about, you know, how to make sure we all have much more inclusive social circles. If who you know is just like you... You're not going to know where those diverse suppliers are or who the diverse cameraman is and blah, blah, blah. Also, because of the past lack of opportunity that there has Mm -hmm. been in our industry for diverse talent, a lot of them leave. There isn't the same retention level. People leave and then you don't know where to find them. So you have to make a concerted effort to go and find this talent. Mm -hmm. Let them know that actually... You want them and you need them.
2: And the BBC is, is literally an institution. So it's it, in a way, it's not just about the BBC. It has the potential and the opportunity to change society in a way that not many of our organizations do have, yeah,
3: I think. 100% Chris, in terms of one, the BBC is really the mirror of ourselves mm-hmm. isn't it? to mm-hmm. ourselves. Yeah. And I- it is also the engine of our creative industry and e- yeah. and not even just in terms of broadcasting because even if you look at BBC creative think how many people have BBC creative go into your industry and go yeah. into, you know they, they start at creative they they hone their craft and then companies that have us come and poach them there are so <laughs> many facets to the organization that feeds through to our creative industry so it's so important that the BBC exists. And actually, when you're going through a crisis like what we're going through, where perhaps some of the commercial organisations might not survive, it's the BBC that keeps the business going but when yeah. there is a boom time again and you do get more competition.
2: You've been a, a, a public figure for many years, an advocate, an agitator for change on the subject of diversity inclusion for a long time. Have you found it difficult, the, the transition from being, if you like, an agitator and a commentator, then suddenly being the person, at least partly responsible for, for making the changes? Or is it always a sort of, <laughs> it's a job I've always wanted?
3: You know, often when you're sort of on the, campaigning side of things and and wanting to be an agent of change, the sort of injustice of it all means that quite rightly, you know, you're quite angry and maybe a bit agitated. And I think that sometimes we forget it is actually a human being on the other side. In order to really get results, I think there needs to be a sort of a, a next level, which is much more about constructive dialogue and constructive solutions-led conversations, which really are are about, okay, well, what can we do? We know the wrongs, let's get to the right, and how do we do that together? And I think we need much more of that, and I think being on the other side of it means that I've become much more mindful of that. So even when I'm no longer in this position, I think just having done it will definitely um, change how I go about this stuff.
2: Before joining the BBC, uh, you wrote a book, Diversify. What did you want to achieve? I mean, I think the title gives us a clue, but what did you what did you hope to achieve with the book?
3: Yeah, well, well you know, for me, Diversify was really all about how to create, uh, a, a, I suppose, a toolkit for change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very prescriptive, the book. And I also made a point of making sure that it was data-led, But still, Mm. you know, with a lot of qualitative, uh, qualitative work as well, so that it wasn't just quantitative data, but really with stories, but backed up by the numbers to sort of reaffirm why. I believe that this was something that mattered. And, and then also to show that there is excitement here and there's there's mm. positivity. You know, it doesn't have mm. to be a negative conversation, which
2: is what it tends to be. Your subhead on the cover is the world is separate enough. Uh, is that, a, yeah. you know, we've got a lot more in common than divides us.
3: Yeah, I think it's nice. I think there's a lot we don't have in common, but...
2: That makes it more interesting, doesn't let it? Let me
3: learn from someone I, you know, that I don't know, and let me learn a viewpoint that perhaps I had never considered before, even if I disagree with it.
2: I do worry that we've sort of forgotten or at least forgetting how to disagree with each other without falling out. I really
3: know, yeah, right? How to agree
2: to disagree.
3: It's fine. Yeah.
2: yeah, exactly. We just don't agree on that. Let's go for a pint. Let's
3: go for a pint, you
2: know? I gather there's a story about Las Vegas.
3: So I was filming in America many years ago. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a very multicultural area. I started working in entertainment and media at a very young age. And so I was always around difference and people from all walks of life. And and it was something that I prided myself on as being very comfortable with. Um, and so I was filming in America a few years ago, and a young guy appeared on set who... Um, had some tattoos and I made up in my head all these ideas about who Mm. I thought he was. It wasn't so much about meeting somebody like him, period, because I grew up on a council estate. So I was used to uh, people like him. Mm. It was someone like him in that context. And Mm. that moment really sort of uh, was a light bulb moment for me because I was able to see this issue from the other side because I'd always looked at Mm. it as being on the receiving end as a black woman and as yeah. a working class woman. So I was able to say, "Oh my God, that's what happens when you see someone as different to yourself. And it made me want to work out how to create a conversation around this issue so that we actually can move forward because we all lose out. You know, it might be that kid yeah. that has the solution yeah. to how we get out of COVID. We don't know. And so, yeah, it was a real turning point for me.
2: So you talk about challenging your isms. Do you think that we all basically have biases?
3: I think we do, because I think we're raised to to have them. Mm. You know, you've Mm. got to be pretty uh, exceptional not to. Mm. Everything in society is designed for us to... Have an idea of what a leader looks like, an idea of what acceptable looks like, an idea of what desirable looks like. But if you want to create a new normal, then you have to challenge yourself not to think like that. When you find yourself reverting back to sort of safety mode, which is what a lot of people perhaps may feel inclined to do in times like this it's again challenging yourself in that
2: moment too I agree with you uh, and I feel like we do all have biases and I and I, I mean I'm not a social scientist but I feel like it's kind of the human condition in a way to, to have biases mm-hmm. you know we're we're, we're, tri- we're sort of tribal animals and all you know and all that sort of yes. uh, but it's, yeah. it's, it's what it's how you then process that I think your ability to catch yourself have a, have an internal dialogue as, as you did you know, I've made that yeah. stupid mistake before, you know, just catch yourself. Are there some uncomplicated <laughs> sort of steps and paths that, that, that uh, people oh, yeah. can take to help?
3: Yeah, for sure. I think, really, um, ev- is everyone in the room, you know, if they're not, go get them. And when they're there, ask what they think and actually ask again and again. So one of the things that we're doing at the BBC, actually, is we um, have created, we're really proud of this. Basically, you know, we had these sort of leadership targets, which it didn't look like we were going to hit. And so what we decided to do was that every leadership committee within the organization would have at least two diverse advisors on them. And so what we're doing with that is we're not just training the advisors, we're also training the boards so that they actually get used Mm -hmm. to being inclusive of this new intake. And I think that's the other thing. Are you creating the kind of culture where even if everybody is in the room, everyone is valued equally in the room that's the other bit because yeah. sometimes you've got them around the table but they're not really allowed to say anything
2: you know often one of the differences between a good meeting and a bad meeting is is the person running the meeting doing what you just described is that person including everybody in the room if you don't feel that somebody should contribute don't invite them to the meeting that's why we're so cynical about meetings because we pack them full of rooms full of people and two people two people talk to each other and somebody writes notes if you're lucky and that's it
3: Even the simple thing as, you know, asking the receptionist or the security guard, because don't forget, they engage with everybody that comes into your building. There is an understanding they have of your company that even perhaps the CEO will never have just because of that interface. And I think that even just that each morning... Whatever, whoever it is, what do you think? We're doing this. What's your opinion? And I think it's really important to be open to the fact that great ideas might not come in the packages you expect them to come in.
2: I completely agree with that point. I mean, there's, there's there's the sort of, the classic example is, you know, if you want to, if you want to understand how a business is doing, let, let's take a retailer, for example, if you want to understand the big yeah. challenges that that retailer has, go and ask the person that works at the checkout. It's actually not that difficult to understand, to get insight into um, the challenges that organizations yeah. face. I, I can I completely agree with that. So we're going to audience questions now. What is your opinion of the current salaries gender gap at BBC? (laughs)
3: Well, when um, the gender pay gap was first uh, made public in 2017, they were two years old, those um, figures. So the 2017 figures that were made public were actually 2015. So if you look at what happened in terms of uh, last year and the, the difference that happened there, there's been a real reduction and actually the BBC now has the best gender pay gap in broadcasting because a concerted effort was made by Tony Hall and his leadership. This is before I started to try and address it. And to me, some of the progress that's met, been made with closing the gender pay gap is, is an example of what we could do in relation to some of the other underrepresented groups. And I don't just mean that in terms of, um, I don't mean that necessarily in terms of salary, but I'm also looking at progression rates and so on. When you really decide you have to tackle something, you can make, Quite quickly, and I think actually the gender pay gap is an example
2: of that. Uh, any company above, I think it's 250 people. I think is the cutoff has to publish yeah. their has to publish their gender gender pay gap, which I think is I think is a great thing. But I I remember when we first uh, sort of sat down and organised hours, and we all there's about sort of ten of us looking at these numbers, and we had to sort of all go on a crash course of statistics. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but actually, uh, you know, th- actually the ability of yeah. everybody to really understand uh, the data and then. Yeah. It, you know, it's a great example, as you say, of getting data, understanding yeah. the, the, the things data can tell you and drawing the right conclusions from yeah. that. And, uh, and the more granular you can get, uh, the more, you know, the more able you are to fix the problem, if you see what I mean.
3: It's so true. And also the other thing is sometimes there's a sort of, there's the general um, uh, misconception that. The gender pay gap is equal pay, and it's not. Yes. The issue is about leadership. Actually, is that there yes. tend to be more men in more senior positions, and those roles are paid more. It's not yeah. like for like, and I think that there yeah. is a lot of um, confusion in the public around yeah. the two.
2: That misunderstanding, I think, is a, a really important point because mm-hmm. you know, so it's not. It's not about being um, semantic or pedantic. It's if unless unless you really understand where the problem is. You can't fix the problem. And if you're looking in the wrong place, you're not going to fix it. And, yeah. and it's amazing how often, how often you can read in, in mainstream press, in, in proper journalists, still yeah. get it wrong. Yeah. And you think you're looking in yeah. the wrong place.
3: They're both equally problematic, but they are different yeah.
2: things. They are different. Exactly. Exactly. How do you handle people who are resistant to your message? And how do you get them on board?
3: Tell you how I don't bother with life is hard enough. Let's go where people want to do it. Let's go Mm -hmm. with where there's a willingness. Let's show it works and improving that it works. Then you find that the resistant ones come on later. But often, what we start trying to change resistant people, and actually, you've wasted all this energy and all this progress that could have been made working with people who want to do it.
2: I think that's a great piece of uh, life advice that is to, to all of yeah. and, <laughs> and, and the, the risk—I mean, I'm not obviously, I'm not trying to put you in a difficult position with this question. But, but by and large, do you find there are a lot of resistant people, or or by and large, everybody wants to wants to create change?
3: Well, you know, it's funny because I was expecting much more resistance. You know, as an outsider, I had my, you know, I've never actually worked inside the BBC. I was always a freelancer. Um, And so as an outsider, I had lots of views about what I thought the BBC was. I don't think it's a resistance to change. I think it's not knowing how to
2: change. I'm I'm hopeful. Do you think, again, this isn't about individuals, but just on a sort of a corporate level, do you think that some people are threatened by it? Um,
3: I think there is definitely an old guard that is threatened by it, as there's a strata of society that have done very well uh, under this sort of somewhat unequal system that we have, and do believe that there is a sort of an order to protect and maintain. Um, but thing is that's no longer sustainable you know there was a time where perhaps you could get away with that but i think that there are just too many people who who know different and want different mm. and actually mm. never tried it the the, the fair way we've mm. never tried it the, the truly inclusive way we've seen all the problems from the
2: exclusive mm. way
3: so actually mm. let's Let's try going and see what happens.
2: Exactly, exactly. Imagine, as you said earlier, imagine the potential that we can we can unlock. Would you say that most leaders have a narcissistic trait?
3: <laughs> you tell me, Chris.
2: Definitely not. Absolutely. <laughs> I I think I should definitely say A huge thank you to June That's the most important task I think I should perform uh, For the fascinating chat Genuinely really enjoyed that I also, of course, want to thank the audience For joining us And the fantastic questions I really enjoyed it I hope they did too Hope you all did too As the audience Uh, And finally, thanks to Intelligence Squared For putting this evening's conversation together And uh, to our fabulous producer Farah If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing...